Good morning. I'm Nicole. Um, I'm going to be reading today from Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 33. So if you want to open your Bibles and follow along. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Um, You are truly worthy, worthy alone of all praise and honor and glory. And Lord, thank you for uh, just the way I've been ministered to by those songs and the reminder of, um, of your great sacrifice. And I thank you that, um, I thank you for including us um, in um, the grand story Thank you for including us in your story, calling us into your kingdom. And God, I pray that we would continue to, uh, the posture of our hearts would be, continue to be, to be worshipful. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, Holy Spirit, bring encouragement and conviction as you uh, see fit to each of our hearts this morning, that we would truly leave here uh, more in awe of you, more in love with you, more resolved to follow you and to worship you and to present our lives as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to you. And so God, please, uh, I need you. I'm in, uh, always in need of you. And just pray, God, that you would help me um, boldly uh, proclaim um, your life-changing and life-saving word. We love you and we continue to commit this time to you. And God's people said, amen. amen. Good morning. So we, we are starting a new sermon series. It's called The, uh, the Mystery of Marriage. And I'm, I'm jazzed about it. It's going to be five, five sermons. Today we're going to talk about the pattern of marriage. Next week we're going to talk about the purpose of marriage. Week three is what's a woman to do. Four, what's a man to do. And then number five is going to be the perversions in, uh, in our culture things that pervert, that pervert marriage as God designed it. And, uh, and I've been looking forward to it, even though this was kind of a difficult message for me. Um, I'm a pretty practical um, 
proclaimer of truth, and I really want to get to the practical stuff. And, and uh, this, this is practical. In fact, it's, it, it's called the pattern of marriage. It's really the, the, uh, the nature of marriage. It's where marriage starts. If you miss today, um, you're going to miss the next, next four weeks. But it's not, um, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's gospel is what it is. It's all gospel today, which I'm excited about. Um, you know, we, I've been married to my wife for 36 years. Um, our 36 years of marriage um, have been anything but smooth sailing. Um, our, we really should be a statistic. I mean, there, we, we both got married without any counseling. We were both very young in age. We both pro- proclaimed faith in Christ, but in hindsight, neither one of us knew what that looked like. Um, but God in his mercy and his kindness have kept us together. And, um, and the longer and longer that we stay together, the more I love her, the more... Um, the more we are committed to each other. And, um, and really, it's because of our um, being taught about the importance of the centrality of the gospel in every marriage. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the pattern of marriage or the centrality of the gospel in marriage. You know, we, we live in a time and culture where God's word is ignored, and marriage is a matter of convenience defined by our culture rather than the timeless word of God. A couple examples is a few years back, about a year and a half ago, actually, the United States Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy, made a landmark decision on the case of Obergfell versus Hodges. A vote to five, four to five, five to four, ruled that the U.S. Constitution guarantees the right to same-sex marriage. But as damaging as that Supreme Court ruling is and was, and it is damaging, and it was damaging, is that it's, it's, it, it is ominous it was for our future, the state has been injuring the pro-marriage culture since 1969. Since 1969, when Governor uh, Ronald Reagan of California made what he later admitted was one of the biggest mistakes of his political life when he signed into effect the nation's first no-fault divorce law in California. And Colorado followed pretty quickly after that. And, uh, and divorce at that point skyrocketed because it was uh, easy to get divorced. And, you know, it's good to laugh. It's good to laugh. Those are not things to laugh at. But I did, I was thinking about what, what do people say about marriage? What do the comedians say about marriage? And I, and I wrote down a few uh, lighthearted jokes and remarks made about marriage that I hope do not relate to you. Marriage is not a word. It's a sentence. It's a life sentence. (laughs) In the first year of marriage, the man speaks and the woman listens. In the second year, the woman speaks and the man listens. In the third year, they both speak and the neighbors listen. (laughs) It is true that all men are born free, but then some of them get married. (laughs) I never knew what happiness was until I got married, and then it was too late. Love is one long, sweet dream, and marriage is the alarm clock. When a man holds a woman's hand before marriage, it's love. After marriage, it's self-defense. Love is holding hands in the street. Marriage is holding arguments in the street. Love is cuddling on the sofa. Marriage is one of you sleeping on the sofa. These jokes all offer a cynical view of marriage, do they not? We've all heard them. We've all joked about it. And... In our culture, marriage is seen as the end of love rather than the beginning of love or the reflection or the shadow of ultimate love. 
We've got thousands of songs about falling in love and, uh, and about falling out of love, but we've got very few songs that celebrate staying in love. This message today, if you are not married, if you are a teenager in your early 20s and you desire to be married, this message is for you. If you are widowed, this message is for you. If you're divorced and single, this message is for you. If you're married, this message is for you. God has something in it for all of us. In Hebrews 13.4, the author of the, Hebrews, uh, of the letter to the Hebrews says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. That, that, that understanding the eternal romance, understanding that, that marriage on this earth is a reflection of a greater marriage, affects the church. And actually, it affects our witness like, like very few others. Very few other things that we can, we can do. In Ephesians 5, 21-31 that Nicole just read, Paul describes how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. And most of you want to get there like right away. Like what does it mean for a husband to love his wife? What does it really mean? What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? And we're going to get there. That'll be the third and fourth messages. But, but for today, we're going to focus on verse 32, where Paul makes one of the strangest yet most profound statements in the entire Bible. He says this. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. What is it? It's our human marriage. It's our, it's our human marriage. This is the profound mystery at many different levels. 36 years of marriage, and there's still things that are a mystery to me. But what Paul is talking about here is a greater mystery, that marriage points to a greater marriage. When God invented marriage, he had already had the saving work of Jesus Christ in mind in the garden. The world was created for marriage, not just for you and I, not just for Adam and Eve, but for Christ in the church. And it doesn't matter, as I said earlier, if you're single or if you're married, you and I were created for marriage. Every human being was created for marriage. Whether you get married on this earth or not, you were created for marriage. You were created for an eternal relationship with the creator of the universe. Marriage is a wraparound concept of the Bible. We've been teaching through a sermon series called Thy Kingdom Come, and we've talked about the kingdom thread going from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It's the same with the marriage thread, that it's a wraparound concept or theme that goes from Genesis through Revelation. In the garden, after God created everything good, it says, everything very good, he created marriage by joining the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman together, as one flesh, husband and wife, let me read Genesis 2, 20 through 24. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's at the beginning of the Bible. And the, the Bible narrative in, in Revelation 19, 6 through 8, ends with a different type of wedding. John 
in the vision that he that is being put before him sees this he says then i heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Then if we take a look at Genesis 1.1, and we look at, take a look at, at Genesis 21.1, Genesis 1.1, the very first book of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then the story ends on an even grander scale, like we talked about last week. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You see, the first cosmos was created as the first home of newlyweds named Adam and Eve. The last cosmos, the new cosmos, will be created as the eternal home of the son and his bride. Brothers and sisters, God has given us a pattern for marriage, for our marriage today. We have a pattern for it. It's not found in self-help books. It's not necessarily found in counselors. It's not necessarily found in books, although those are all helpful. But it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A pattern that leads to lasting joy, lasting satisfaction, and lasting happiness. A pattern that leads to ultimate hope and ultimate fulfillment. God's covenant relationship as a husband to his often wayward bride is one of the recurring themes throughout all of Scripture. We see it in Ezekiel and Hosea and Revelation 17 and 19 and 21. In Christ, we see the full extent of God's love and marital faithfulness to the church. Our marriages should point to the same. Love and marital faithfulness. A key theme in understanding marriage is God does not exist to make much of marriage. He does not exist to make much of our marriage. Marriage exists to show the world the glory of Christ in his church. That's the purpose of your marriage, to show the glory of Christ in his church. The profound, the profound mystery that Paul speaks about in, in Ephesians 5.32 means the hidden plan of God that has come to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Paul's meaning is profound. He interprets the original creation of the husband and wife union as itself modeled on Christ's forthcoming union with the church as his body. Therefore, marriage at the beginning of creation, <clears throat> excuse me, was created by God to be a reflection of and a pattern after, Christ, after Christ's relation to the church. Christ and the church are not the metaphor. Christ and the church are not the metaphor in this passage. It's the opposite. Our marriages are the metaphor. Christ in the church is the reality. It's the real marriage. Earthly marriage points us to the real marriage that our souls need and the real families that our hearts long for. As married couples, and I can speak firsthand to this, being married 36 years, as married couples, we will do a bad job of conducting our marriages if we don't see the penultimate status. Do you know what penultimate means? It means, it means second, second best. It means, it means that if we, don't, if we don't see our marriages uh, in their penultimate status, our marriages pointing to a greater marriage, then we're going to miss it. Even the best marriage cannot by itself fill the void in our souls. Only God can. And I, and I probably should say this all the way through. Marriage is awesome. I love being married. I love it. And we're going to talk about the primary purpose for marriage next week. But I don't know. 
It's hard. Marriage is stinking hard. But it's worth the investment. Right? Come on, guys. Yeah. Without a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Jesus, we will put too much pressure on our marriages to find ultimate fulfillment and happiness in them. And that will always create pain and angst. When we're looking for ultimate hope and happiness in our marriage, I can promise you, you're going to end up in counseling. You're going to end up with some type of broken marriage that needs repair. Singles, if you're single here today, Marriage is as much for you as it is for those of us that are married in this room. Singles, too, must see the penultimate status of marriage, the secondary status of marriage. If single Christians don't develop a deep and fulfilling love relationship with Jesus, you, too, will put too much pressure on a, on a dream of marriage, and that will create pain in your lives as well. However, if singles, if you singles learn to rest in and rejoice in your marriage to Christ, that means you'll be able to handle single life without the devastating sense of being unfulfilled and unformed. You are complete in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that, that, that you shouldn't get married. It, shouldn't, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't long to be married. But what it means is, is that getting married isn't going isn't to satisfy your longing for ultimate relationship, hope, and happiness. And you might want to start now. You might as well tackle this spiritual project right now if you're single. Why? Because the same idolatry of marriage that is distorting your single lives will eventually distort your married lives when you find a partner. So there's no reason to wait. Demote marriage and family in your heart. Demote it and put Christ first. Don't throw it away. It's good. Marriage is good. But demote it in your, in your heart. Put God first and begin to enjoy the goodness of the single life married to the King of Kings. And there is no harshness there for me at all. I want to encourage you if you're single. Because I know that some of you are single and you long to be married. And that's such a good thing. And I want to pray that the Lord brings you a helper fit for you, a husband or a wife. But if, if you're lacking joy, if you're lacking happiness, if you're lacking fulfillment, and you're looking for that in a spouse, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Not that my wife doesn't bring me great satisfaction and great happiness, but she doesn't bring me ultimate satisfaction and ultimate happiness and ultimate hope. The Bible has a very high view of marriage. However, it does exalt singleness as well. And in and, and, and exalting singleness, it's not a pathway to freedom for ourselves, but it's also not a platform, it, but, but it's a platform for unimpeded, unimpeded service to the family of God and the work of God. So what's the pattern of marriage? It's the gospel. It's Jesus' relationship with the church and our relationship with him. Timothy Keller says this. He says, both men and women get to play the Jesus role in marriage. It sounds kind of heretical when I first read it, and then when I wrote it, and then when I just said it again. But it's not. His husbands and wives both get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority and Jesus in his submission to the Father. In Ephesians 5, the verse said that we're going to be bouncing around on the next few weeks. In the, the first verse of chapter 5 is uh, Paul kind of sets it up to, uh, to describe the heart that we should have in all of our key relationships. Our, our spouse, 
our with parenting with our kids and then um, with our employer and our employees. And he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 5 with these instructions on how to relate to one another. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A reminder up front that any imitation of God because, is only because of who he is and what he's done. We imitate God not to gain anything. We obey God not so that, that he'll love us more. But we imitate him and we live our lives in a pattern after him because of everything he's done for us. That's worship, living in obedience to him. So imitating God, loving as Christ loved, sacrificing as Jesus sacrificed is our worship in response to all he has done and all he promises to do. And since God's nature is love, it's a fundamental characterization of the Trinitarian, of the Trinity, uh, and we are his image bearers, you and I, that we are to have loving marriages. So if we were to pattern our lives and marriages after Jesus, we should probably be reminded about how Jesus loves. I'm just saying, if we're to imitate Jesus, if we're to love our wives' husbands as Christ loves the church, if we're to submit ladies as Jesus submits to the Father, we should probably know what, how Jesus loved us. And, I, and I've got just a few points here. Jesus' love was submitting. It was submitting. There's no question that during the time of Jesus' life on earth, he was subject to the authority of God the Father. Hebrews 10, 7, Jesus, Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. John 4, 34, My food is to, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. John eight twenty eight. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And then finally, in Matthew 26, 39, before Jesus, the, the day before Jesus was killed, the night before he was killed in Gethsemane, he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 21, that all Christians are to submit to one another. And in 5, 22, it's the primary means by which a wife relates to her husband. And we're going to talk more about that in, in the third week. We're going to talk about what that means for a wife to submit to her husband. And just P.S., it doesn't mean the wife's a doormat. It doesn't mean that the husband's here and the wife's here. It's equality. Different roles, but equality. When you see, just P.S., when you see a wife who submits, you know what's on the other side of that? A husband that loves really well. A husband that loves really well. Next, Jesus' love was sacrificing. Christ embraced sinful humanity. He didn't exclude us when we were enemies by simply consigning us to judgment. He embraced us by dying on a cross for our sins. To love a spouse, especially a spouse who is hostile or who is lost, requires sacrifice. It means sometimes experiencing betrayal and rejection and attacks. And when we experience those in our marriages, it's easy to leave. It's easy to check out mentally. It's easy to check out um, through the no-fault divorce. It's easy to check out. 
That's the easiest thing to do. But Jesus did not do that. He embraced and loved us, and he brought us into a new unity with himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became our sin. So we might become the righteousness of Christ. That Jesus' love is sacrificing, and that's the same type of sacrifice we're to have in our mirrors. It's the pattern that we're to emulate. Jesus' love served with humility. He came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. The selfless love of Christ is the model for how spouses are to love one another. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, is probably the most stark example we have of Christ serving humility. He says this, Let each of you not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus' love serves us with humility. It serves with humility. Jesus' love is forgiving. Don't need to go much past that, that we would not have a relationship with the creator of the universe if, unless we were forgiven. We've been forgiven of every past, present, and future sin. We've been forgiven as far as, as the east is from the west. In, 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 in marriages, the marriages that, that we see uh, just in this body, that um, some, are, some are in the ER on life support, um, others just stub their toe and they, and they want to get it wrapped up so that they don't end up in the ER someday. But we have this, we, have the, we talk about this wall that is between every husband and wife. And that wall existed in, in our marriage, in our, in, the first, in our honeymoon, first seven days of our honeymoon. And that wall, that wall gets built up between husband and wife and after a while it becomes insurmountable and they both check out. And you know what that wall is built, what the bricks of that wall are? Unconfessed sin and unforgiveness. So at the, at, the, at, the, at the end of every problem in a marriage is, is unforgiveness and unconfessed sin. So we walk couples through. We help them identify their sin. In most marriages, at least in mine, it's a lot easier for us to see the other person's sin. Okay, can anybody else relate with that? I mean, I could be like, you know, whatever sin comes to mind. And like living in it, and Nancy will like hardly do anything. I'm like, see, sinner! <laughs> and that wall is only broken down by, by humbly confessing sin and humbly forgiving the other person's sin, even if the person doesn't ask for forgiveness. Jesus, his love is forgiving. Jesus' love was unifying. We are one with him. He held nothing back from us. We are in Christ and he is in us. Romans 6, we talk about that verse a lot. I feel like that chapter 6 of Romans has changed my life. It's changed my life because I've, I've recognized that I am a new creation. We talked about that in 2 Corinthians. But I'm a new creation because Romans 6 says that I have died with Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, you've died with him. You have been, you've been buried with him. You've been raised with him. 
The old has gone, the new has come. You now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can walk in newness of life. You see, your life is no longer your own. When you came to Christ, your life is no longer your own. You are unified with Jesus Christ forever. And it's the same thing when you said, I do to your wife. That your, wife, your life, husbands and wives, is no longer your own. It's not your own to do what you want to do with. It's not your own to go on, on all the vacations you want to go on, even when your wife or your husband doesn't want you to do it. In Ephesians 5.31, sticking with the Jesus' love was unifying theme, in Ephesians 5.31, it's a, it's a uh, restatement, actually an exact restatement of Genesis 2.24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The husband is to hold fast to his wife. That literally means to solder two pieces of metal together. That your relationship with Jesus Christ is forever sealed by the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that can break it apart. And when you say, I do, and become one flesh, it's like two pieces of metal being soldered together, to never be broken apart. Ray Ortland says this. He says, we hear our Lord Jesus Christ call us to himself and tell us that we are so joined to him that he does not have anything of his own which he does not share with us and of which he will not have us as partakers. That you and I have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We are heirs to the throne of grace. Jesus has held nothing back. This is a pattern for our marriages. The word one means, the, one, the word one in these verses speaks of a life fully shared. So in the one flesh union of marriage, all the boundaries between a man and a woman fall away, and the married couple comes together completely as long as they both shall live. In real terms, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us, building a life together with one total everything. One story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, and so forth. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. It is this all-encompassing unity that sets marriage apart as marriage. Next, Jesus' love is covenantal. Jesus is a promise keeper. Indeed, it's God's chosen illustration of Christ's covenant love for his church. That's, that's marriage. We are to love and be loved, not merely through sentimental affection or sensual desire. Those aren't bad things, but through a sustained sacrificial kindness in every season of life. Every season of life. Just thinking about you, Carol. Every season of life. And you are loving. You're loving Doyle well. Thank you for the example. We're to love. Sacrificial love in every season of life. 
our love is to be unconditional, not based on the other person's glamorous looks, not on their uh, behavior, but on a commitment of exclusive devotion to their present and eternal good. God's covenant with humankind becomes the source and model for the commitment between husband and wife. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. There was nothing that we did that was good enough for him to, to invite us in. And there's nothing that you can do that's bad enough. Nothing. If you're born again, there's nothing you can do that's bad enough that would cause him to be done with you, to leave you or forsake you. There's nothing we can do to undo his love for us. He will never call off the marriage and he'll never divorce us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us no matter how, how we look in our old age, what we look like after whatever. One of the refrains in the Song of Songs is my lover is mine and I am his. The first service got no emotion. Sorry about that. My lover is mine and I am his. And this, this is similar language that God uses to describe his relationship with you and I. I will be your God and you will be my people. Finally, Jesus' love is satisfying. We are, we are to be satisfied in him and only in him. And I want you to hear me on this. Marriage is God's idea. And it brings forth great happiness. It has a potential of great happiness. Great satisfaction. Great hope. But it won't ultimately satisfy us. Jesus said in John 7.37, he stood up and he cried out. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This isn't just salvation. This is where we're satisfied day in and day out. In Matthew 5, 6, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Great and lasting satisfaction can only be found in marriage. Excuse me, can be found in marriage, but only when you're ultimately satisfied in Christ. The eternal romance is not the love of a couple getting married, but the love of Jesus for us and our joyful obedience to him. The eternal love story is why God created the universe and why God gave us marriage in Eden and why couples fall in love and get married in the world today. I've done quite a few marriages, and every time the husband and the wife, the bride and the groom, stand there and take their vows, they are reacting the biblical love story. They're reenacting the gospel, whether they realize it or not. The Son of God stepping down out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning his bride so that he can fit her to be with him forever. And that is the dramatic super reality and the breathtaking reason of why human marriage exists. 
It's truly profound. And Christian married couples, you've got the privilege. We've got the privilege of making the mystery of the gospel visible in this world by living out the dynamic interplay of Ephesians 5. We should not think of Christ and the church as a metaphor in this passage. Our marriages are the metaphor. It's the reverse. Christ and the church are the realities of realities. I'm going to finish up here. So all of us, whether you're single and never want to get married or single and long to be married, whether you are married, widowed, divorced, this passage talks about what we should long for and what we should pray for in our church. And a reminder that God does not hate, wow, God does not hate divorced people. God does not hate homosexual people. God does not hate Supreme Court justices. He does not hate you and I. He so loved the world and he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That we could look forward to the great wedding feast with our great king and husband. Let's pray. God, I bless you. I thank you for your holy, your holy word abiding, living, and active. And God, I pray that these uh, truths from your scriptures would sink deep into our souls. And I pray, God, that the, the, the pattern for our human marriages, God, I pray that the pattern that you laid forth in the gospel, God, I pray that we would, we would emulate that pattern, that we would walk as you walked, so that we would bring you maximum glory and honor. We know that we're already we're loved in ways that we can never be loved more. There's nothing that we can do to earn a firmer uh, standing in your kingdom. We're, we're yours. And God, I pray that we would be a church that has marriages that wants to respond with amen that I want to follow. I want my marriage to emulate the pattern of Christ's marriage with the church. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us to do that. I pray, God, for marriages that are at all different levels of health in this body. God, I pray that we would be ones who do not um, condemn one another, but come alongside each other to give a, a hand up, to speak truth, to remind each other of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, God, I pray that the, any health in our marriages would not only bring you glory, but I pray that the onlooking world would see something different. And that they would, they would desire what we have. And then we would boldly respond, yeah, we've got all these tools that help us have great marriages. But no, we wouldn't do that, God. We would say, we have got a great king. We have got a great helper who has called us into his, his forever kingdom. And that we would give you all the glory and honor. And that many people would be saved as a result of marriages that, uh, that follow after your, pa- your pattern of loving us. We love you and we give you all the glory and the honor. And God's people said,